Tell her about the lady who comes after she tucks us in. How she leans over me to kiss me, but I never feel the kisses. It's not mom. I know it's not. She smells different than mom does. Mom smells like soap, but this lady smells like flowers and fruit. It always says threes on the clock when she wakes me up. She's the one who hates mommy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dark House. I'm Melissa Fiorentino. And I'm Hadley Mendelson. We are your co-hosts. If you're new here in each episode, we dig into the backstory of a house that is allegedly haunted or notorious for some reason or another. We'll talk about who lived there, who died there, and all of the events that led to its eventual infamy. Today, we will be talking about 1677 Round Top Road in Burrowville, Rhode Island, which is the farmhouse that inspired the movie The Conjuring. Have you seen The Conjuring, Hadley? I have not. Have you? I actually have never seen it. And I was going to watch it for this episode, but then I didn't because I found out that even though the movie says based on a true story, 95% of the plot was made up and not even close to the real story of what happened to the Perrin family who owned the house in the 1970s. Mm. So today we're going to talk about the real true story, which is documented in the book trilogy House of Darkness, House of Light by Andrea Perrin, who is the eldest of the five Perrin daughters. But we will touch on the movie a little bit because as it turns out, it stirred up a lot of drama between the homeowners. Mm, I'm curious to hear what happened now. You say drama and then my ears perk up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then weren't there also issues while filming? Like, didn't the cast report weird stuff happening on set? Yes, they did. And we will get into all of that. But we have a lot of ground to cover first. So I want to get started. But before we begin, I do want to take a second to give everyone a heads up that today's story includes mentions of suicide and sexual assault. If any of these topics may be upsetting for you, please proceed with caution or consider listening to another episode instead. Like I said, we're in Rhode Island in the town of Burville and more specifically in Harrisville, which is a village within the town, but I'm just going to stick with Burville for the remainder of the episode to keep things simple. Burville is in Northern Rhode Island and it's about 40 minutes outside of the state capital, which is Providence. It's so far north, actually, that the property line of 1677 Round Top Road basically touches the Massachusetts state border. Okay. According to Andrea Perrin, the plot was around 200 acres total when the land was originally deeded in 1680. But today, the property is about eight and a half acres, which is still pretty big, though most of it is just woods. That's kind of spooky in and of itself. I mean, who isn't afraid of the woods? Yeah, right. Overall, the setting is rural and remote, so it's got that element of isolation, but there are a lot of specific details that I thought sounded really creepy that I want to tell you about. So just to try to walk you through the property, starting in the front, you have the barn, which is actually right on the road. And next to the barn is a curved driveway that leads you to the farmhouse, which is set back on the property and concealed by three large trees. And the property edge is lined with a low stone wall and a wooden split rail fence. It kind of reminds me of the opening scenes from Hocus Pocus. You know what I mean? Yeah. Behind the farmhouse is a large grassy area that slopes downward and is surrounded by woods. And towards the back of the yard, there's a small opening in the low stone wall that leads to what used to be an old wagon road, which was once the only route from Worcester, Massachusetts to Providence, Rhode Island. Just off this wagon road 
is what the parents referred to as the old cellar hole, ah, which is the only thing left from a second house that had been built on the property, but was knocked down way before the family moved in. And then 20 feet away from the old cellar hole is an old stone well. <sighs> the well was covered by a piece of granite that was shaped like a bell, but the parents did eventually have it reopened. The well? Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, leave that shit concealed. That's what I'm saying. It's a little unclear exactly when the farmhouse was built. Andrea Perrin says 1736, but the official property record says 1836. Either way, the 3,000-square-foot farmhouse is one of the last remaining original colonial homes in Rhode Island, and it looks the part. In the 70s, when the Perrin family lived there, the exterior of the farmhouse was painted white, but today the siding is just brown wood, which is, I guess, how it would have looked when it was first built. As for the architecture, it's Cape Cod style, but the structure itself is long and ranch-like. We know you don't like that. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't. (laughs) But there are two floors and 10 rooms total, including three bedrooms and two bathrooms. The house has four fireplaces, as well as a cellar and an attic crawl space. (laughs) Did you just sigh over the attic crawl space? Yeah, I'm over those. They've never led us to anything good in this series. (laughs) Yeah, they really haven't. There are tons of pictures and videos you can check out online to see inside the house, but Zillow actually has a 3D tour option, which I highly, highly recommend you do. We'll add it to the show notes so you guys can just click in and follow along. But it helped me get a better understanding of the layout of the house, but it also feels like you're really in there and it's super creepy. So definitely check that out if you have time. To give you a little visual in the meantime, the interiors are ancient looking. If you've ever toured a colonial house or even the House of Seven Gables in Salem, picture that. The floors are all wide planked wood. The ceilings are low. And on the first floor, they all have exposed wood beams. The doors and windows are small and they all have original wrought iron latches. It looks like every step you take in this house, the floors creak. (laughs) The rooms on the first floor all have wainscoting, some painted burgundy with fireplace mantles painted to match. Meanwhile, the kitchen and the bathroom are very rustic. All wood, everything, the cabinets to the sink, vanity, and everything in between. There are two enclosed staircases that lead up to the second floor, one on either side of the house. They're both narrow and rickety looking. I'm sure you can picture it. Yeah. The stairs down to the cellar, even worse. The second floor has three bedrooms that are all conjoined, one leading into the next. And there's a specific cramped feeling to these bedrooms, too, because the ceilings are slanted like a converted attic. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah, they're, like, pitched. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can actually see in the photos that the walls up here are cracking, and the age of the house is just definitely showing. Hmm. But it was in worse shape when the parents moved in. At the time, there was no insulation, the heating system was antiquated, and the electricity was original wiring. Plus, back then, the house only had one bathroom. And I know what you're thinking. Well, why did they buy it? Yeah. So do we know? I mean, it's complicated. But before we get into it, let me introduce you to the family. Okay. The Perrins are a family of seven. There's Roger and Carolyn Perrin, who got married in 1957. And their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, whose nickname is Chrissy, Cynthia, whose nickname is Cindy, and April. Andrea, the eldest, was about 12 years old when her family first moved into the farmhouse in January 1971, and April, who was the youngest, was maybe five or six. Roger was a traveling salesman, so he was actually out of town a lot, which we'll talk about. 
And as far as I can tell, Carolyn was a stay-at-home mom. Prior to moving into the farmhouse, the parents had been living in Cumberland, Rhode Island. During the summer of 1970, Carolyn started to feel like their neighborhood was becoming unsafe, but there were a few specific events that ultimately led to the family's move from Cumberland to Burville. First, their family dog, Bathsheba, was hit by a car. This took the biggest toll on Andrea, who had taken the dog out for a walk and blamed herself for the accident. Next, a group of teenage boys broke into the house while they were on vacation and ransacked the place. And they murdered one of the family's four cats. What the Scrunch. Hell? Oh, mm-hmm. Scrunch. They stole and sold two other cats, and only one cat named Juliet managed to escape. That's fucked up. So, okay, they turned out to be serial killers. Also, is Bathsheba a family name? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I want to know anymore. Yeah. No, there was no explanation at that point of where they got that name. That's really sad. So bad things are happening to the family pets. That's really traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can press charges against something like that, right? Like animal cruelty, I think, is illegal. Well, Andrea beat the shit out of the kid who did it. So Good. Okay. The breaking point came soon after when a man crashed his truck into the parents' front yard after having a heart attack behind the wheel. <gasps> so this is obviously very traumatic, but it also brought about some strange accusations. Apparently, the man's wife blamed Carolyn for her husband's tragic death and accused her of being a witch. Oh, boy. She never really gets explained, but... Huh. Yeah, I want to know more about that. Just wait. So even though they were not in the financial position to move, Carolyn became fixated on the idea of finding a place in the country to raise her girls. One day while looking through the newspaper, she saw an ad for a nine-room colonial farmhouse with barn listed for $75,000. On impulse, she called to make an appointment to see it the next day without her husband. Mm. When Carolyn arrived at the farm, she was blown away. In House of Darkness, House of Light, Andrea Perrin compares the moment to a scene from The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy leaves her black and white home and steps into the Technicolor land of Oz. The owner at the time was an old man named Mr. Kenyon who gave Carolyn a tour of the house and the grounds. By the end of the tour, she'd fallen so in love with the house that she wrote the realtor a check for $500 to hold the property for them, which nearly drained their bank account. And throughout the book trilogy, it's repeated that Carolyn felt drawn to the farmhouse, which reminded me a lot of S.K. Pierce Mansion. Yeah, or even The Watcher when it says, were you drawn to the house by some force within it? True. These houses. These houses. Roger was upset that Carolyn made this decision without discussing it with him, but when she brought the rest of her family to see the farmhouse, they immediately fell in love too. The girls ran through the grounds and Andrea said that the property had felt, quote, strangely familiar to them. On the way home, Roger admitted that he too was drawn to the house, saying he'd never felt so attracted or attached to a place before, so anxious to return. Oh. Hmm. It took the parents a few months to pull together the money, but they finally moved into the farmhouse in January of 1971. And according to Andrea, the paranormal activity began the day they moved in. She recalls walking into the kitchen that day and greeting Mr. Kenyon, who was still packing up his own belongings. While chatting with Mr. Kenyon, she noticed a male apparition in the corner. What? She said he looked absolutely solid, like flesh and blood. He looked so real to her that she actually greeted him. Her sisters saw him too and asked their mom who the man with Mr. Kenyon was, but Carolyn told them that no one else was there. Oh no. Leaving the house later that evening, Mr. Kenyon pulled Roger aside and left him with a cryptic message. For the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. No. 
thanks. Remember I texted you and I was like, I just read a line in this book and now I'm freaking out. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is really freaky. Gave myself chills just there. Yeah, I'm like, why was Mr. Kenyon leaving? Or Kenyon, excuse me. I think because he was really old at that point. It's a big property. Okay. And a big house to be by yourself. Leave the lights on. He didn't give any explanation for that either. Ugh. So he's telling them it's haunted, sort of, without actually telling them it's haunted? That's what the parent family says happened, or at least that's what they allude to. Apparently, all of the fireplaces had been sealed shut years before, and Carolyn had tried to ask Mr. Kenyon why, but he kept avoiding the question. And in the end, the only response he gave was, swallows in the chimney, with a wink. He also didn't provide them with a proper set of keys, and when Carolyn asked him about that, he said, I never locked the doors. No need. No one will bother you here. Okay, I'm clearly freaked out, but also he's sending really mixed signals. Yeah. Well, it seems they never got real confirmation from him, but I honestly don't think they would have needed it because they had so many stories of their own. And we won't have time to go over everything in detail, so I'm going to try to stick to the most important residual hauntings and apparitions. Okay. So let's start with the residual hauntings. You had all of the usual stuff. Weird sounds. Animals behaving strangely and reacting to something when nothing is there. Doors opening and closing at will. The house was incredibly cold, even in the summer. And there was always random pockets of odors. The smell of death, as the parents described it. The girls always complained of their toys being moved from where they'd left them and said that they always felt like they were being watched. Also, the electricity bills were mysteriously three times as high as they should have been. And in their first year at the house, they struggled with an overwhelming fly infestation in the dead of winter. These things seemed to happen all over the house, but there were certain spots that were maybe not more active than others, but tied to a specific spirit or apparition. So I'll tell you about a few of those. Okay. First, the front hallway that connects the kitchen to the dining room was noted as one of the most haunted spots in the house. The family dog refused to pass through it, and the kids would always move quickly when they had to go through it. Relatable description. Yeah. But this is where they frequently saw a male ghost that they eventually named Manny. This is the same apparition that several of the girls saw with Mr. Kenyon on the day they moved in, and he is a good ghost. Andrea said that the girls were never frightened of him, considering him a rather protective influence, someone to watch over them, which he did with considerable frequency. Hmm. So he's a good guy. I wonder if it's like Mr. Kenyon Young. I don't think so, because he (laughs) was in the same room as Mr. Kenyon. (laughs) There was also a father-son apparition duo that Carolyn called the Baker Boys, who weren't as, let's say, warm as Manny. And it's not that they were mean per se, but more so that they were oblivious to the living people in the house. They were said to stare right through you. And they were often seen on the landing of the bedroom stairs. Oh God, go somewhere else. Well, speaking of the bedrooms, there was one ghost tied specifically to Cindy and Chrissy's room, which is the middle bedroom on the second floor. It was a little girl who seemed very sad and was often heard calling for her mother. Mm. One of the parent girls gave a particularly memorable description of her, saying, We used to think it was two girls because she wears two different dresses, one when she's sick and one when she's fine. She's so lonely. It's very sad. It makes me cry, too. (sighs) How you doing? (laughs) I just had like a big rush of fear run up my spine. (laughs) 
that's how I'm doing. She would appear at dawn during sunrise as, quote, an opaque shadow huddled in a corner of the bedroom, silent and motionless, as if waiting for something or hiding from someone. And then she was gone. And apparently she reappeared around dusk later in the day. But she wasn't the only one who frequented this bedroom. At night, Cindy would hear several voices chanting, telling her about seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. She said this was scary at first, but she got used to it and it went from scary to mainly just annoying. Here's how she described it. They wake me up on purpose and say it over and over again. They don't care if I have a test in the morning. They wake me up anyway, on purpose. Why? Like, I wonder what their point is. So April and Nancy also shared a bedroom, the first bedroom on the second floor, which has what they called the chimney closet. Hmm. And it's this small alcove where the center chimney runs vertically through the house. So it's warmer than the rest of the house and, and the rest of the bedroom. Okay. And April would often play here alone when her older sisters were at school. This is where she befriended the apparition of a little boy. April said the boy had blonde hair and green eyes that were filled with pain. She said he looked about six or seven years old and extremely fragile and frail, as if he had gone hungry in life. She described the apparition as translucent, though she couldn't see through him. Later in life, as an adult, it was hard for her to talk about her friendship with the boy. So instead, she wrote her thoughts down in a letter. My plan was to try to trim it down to just the important parts, but I couldn't do it. I have to read you the whole thing. (laughs) The bigger problem is, I don't know if I can get through it without crying. I haven't been able to yet. Oh my God. I already feel like I'm crying. Okay. (laughs) Do you think you're really going to cry? I've never seen you cry. I know. You know, I don't show emotion. Okay. This is going to be a big moment for us. It could be. I brought my tissues because I was just like, I know where this is going. Oh, that's why you have the tissues. Okay, I'll just wipe it on my arm. But all right, here goes. His name is Oliver Richardson. He never spoke to me, but in some way he was able to communicate without speaking. He conveyed his name to me silently or I named him. I cannot explain it, but I know it was his name. He was always upstairs in the chimney closet. To my knowledge, this is where he dwells and he never ventures beyond that room. He hides behind the little crawl space door. Whenever I would go upstairs to play, he would cautiously peek out, as if to see if it was safe. He emerged tentatively, looking around again, before he would settle beside me on the floor. He felt comforted by my presence, I know he did. In some ways, we'd comforted each other. He never participated in my play. However, he did pick up the little people and stared at them fascinated. Whenever he left me, he would always go back inside the crawl space into the eaves as cautiously as he had emerged, first peering inside and then carefully looking back behind him as if to avoid being followed. I know he was always hiding in there, so afraid of something. I'm not sure of what or more likely whom. He never did disclose that to me. He has resided there a long time and I'm sure he is still at the farm. He is all alone. He has been abandoned, forsaken long ago. I know in my heart that his short life was tragic. As a child myself, I could feel his fright, the pain he was in, and all I could do was keep him company. Because he had chosen me, I felt compelled to protect him. I told no one except Kathy, and that was many years later. As I lost my own innocence, as my identity became altered with age, I too abandoned him. Over the years, it has caused me sadness and regret. Nancy had, without anyone's permission, given all the closet toys to a needy family in the community. Her heart was in the right place, but it broke my heart to come home one day and have all the objects from my childhood completely gone, as if they had never existed at all. 
I mourned that loss and never returned to the chimney closet. Nancy did not realize what she had done. While generously helping the living, she had inadvertently robbed her own sister of what remained of a childhood and had, in the process, deprived two lonely souls of the toys that they both loved and shared. They were all Oliver had. I was all Oliver had, and then I went away. I was lost to him, and he was lost to me. When I was older and moved into the middle bedroom, he would often crack the closet door, then peek in, just to let me know he was still there, and I would ignore him. As I grew older, he would, at times, gaze into Nancy's room from the same adjoining closet. We were rowdy teenagers then, doing things teenagers do. I would notice him occasionally watching me through a crack in the door. It was during these unwelcome visits his woeful countenance would transform into an expression of uncertainty, disapproval, and disdain when I would fail to acknowledge him. None of my sisters could see him, so I ignored him. I'm not sure why. I think it was because he represented a time in my life that was lost. The age of innocence and time we shared together was one in which he was trapped, destined to remain forever. A time I'd wanted to keep, but could never again recapture. I feel certain the lifetime of the boy I knew as Oliver Richardson was cut short by some kind of violence, abuse, or neglect. The awful truth of his brief life was bad enough, but the real tragedy is his eternal captivity. He remains a prisoner in a house which offers him nothing but fear, loneliness, and isolation. I know the feeling, and I know in my heart, he remains a victim of his own untimely death. I still mourn his loss and always will. How are you feeling? You didn't cry. I didn't cry. I mean, I'm sad, but I guess I'm just really concerned. For which kid? For both, frankly. It brings my mind to certain cases that I've heard of in contemporary times. It's really sad to think what could have happened to the boy. And I hope that, honestly, it was a figment of her imagination because it's too sad otherwise. Yeah, I almost don't even care one way or another whether this is an imaginary friend or a ghost because, honestly, the subtext of mourning your childhood. Yeah. Heavy. Luckily, my mom keeps everything, so all the dolls are still there. Great. (laughs) Along with the, like, Smirnoff pints from high school that I hid in the same closet. Good for your imaginary friends. So, for the girls, while they definitely had their share of scary encounters, they were mostly fine with the spirits and even really liked some of them. But that wasn't exactly the case for their mother, who over the years was subject to countless paranormal attacks, some even getting physical. For example... One day while Carolyn was alone in the barn, she heard a whooshing sound like a large bird trapped in the rafters. Then suddenly a hand scythe came flying towards her from the rafters above and struck her, slicing her neck and shoulder. Luckily, she was wearing a thick leather jacket, which prevented the blade from breaking her skin. But still. What is that tool? It's a sharp, rounded tool used for cutting and baling hay. Oh, Like a claw almost, but like a gardening tool type of thing. Okay. Yes. Something for the farm. (laughs) (laughs) As a reminder, Roger was a traveling salesman and not home often. And when Carolyn would tell him about things happening at the house while he was away, he would be very skeptical of her stories. So eventually it became difficult for her to talk to him about it at all. Coincidentally, though, the worst attack she experienced happened when Roger actually was home. Hmm. One morning around dawn, Carolyn was woken by the sound of footsteps on their bedroom floor. She sensed a presence behind her and assumed it was one of their daughters. But when she opened her eyes, she saw the figure of a woman hovering above her. Here's a description of this apparition that Carolyn had scrambled to jot down after the encounter. So it's a little disjointed. A green-brown jersey dress, plain, long, with pockets on both sides of bodice, arms, but no hands. Dress went to the floor, but no feet. 
floating above, threatening, intimidating, wants to kiss me, wants to kill me. Ugly beehive head, a hornet's nest broken, neck snapped, hanging to the side. No eyes, no mouth, gray mesh cobwebs, no hands, no feet, just floating above me. Cold, so cold, can't breathe, vile, evil, death. So is this a family of aspiring creative writers or what? Yeah, we'll see. We're going to get into it. Staying objective. Okay. As the figure moved closer and closer to Carolyn, she became frozen with fear, trying to yell out, but unable to make a sound. She tried waking Roger up, but nothing worked. She actually thought he was dead. The woman kept moving towards her, and in the last instant before contact, Carolyn whispered, God help me, and then the apparition disappeared. Later that morning, Andrea found her mother's notes about the encounter scribbled in a notebook where she usually wrote down the grocery list. And immediately, she recognized the description, telling Carolyn, I dreamed this. It woke me up. But then I couldn't move. You were screaming, and I couldn't come to help, but I could hear you. (gasps) Months after Carolyn was attacked, the female entity began appearing to Cindy at night. Eventually, Cindy confided in Andrea, asking her sister to tell their mom on her behalf. Here's what she said. Tell her about the lady who comes after she tucks us in. How she leans over me to kiss me, but I never feel the kisses. It's not mom. I know it's not. Ew. She smells different than mom does. Mom smells like soap, but this lady smells like flowers and fruit. It always says threes on the clock when she wakes me up. I feel her first. She makes me so cold, and then my room stinks. She's the one who hates mommy. Uh, she farted. Yeah. (laughs) That's so creepy. And the threes on the clock. Ooh. I know. I hate when I wake up at 333, and now I really will. The witching hour. Mm Mm-hmm. So by this point, Carolyn wants to sell the house, but they really can't afford it. And the girls all screamed in protest that they loved it there. But the stress began to affect Carolyn more and more. Physically, she starts to look drained and older, sort of withering away. And her voice started to change and became more hollow and shrill. Mentally, she became very distracted and fixated with researching the history of the house, trying to identify who the spirits could be, especially the lady with the broken neck. So she started going to the town library and the town hall and even traveling to other nearby towns to dig through their archives. In House of Darkness, House of Light, Volume 1, Andrea says that it was while searching through the Chipachet archives that Carolyn discovered the identity of her, quote, arch-rival and nemesis, one evil mistress of the house, Bathsheba Sherman. Stop. Bathsheba? Bathsheba. Wait, stop. To my knowledge, there's no connection between Bathsheba the dog and Bathsheba Sherman. Are you sure? I'm not sure of anything in this episode, if I'm being completely honest. I'm like really stuck on the dog. Let's circle back to Bathsheba the name and the dog. Yeah, okay. According to the information Carolyn had heard or found about Bathsheba, she was a member of the Arnold family who owned the property in the 1800s. In her lifetime, Bathsheba was accused of being a witch and of murdering an infant in some type of satanic ritual sacrifice. Though she was ultimately acquitted, her reputation never recovered, and Bathsheba remained the subject of whispers and rumors for the rest of her life. Mm. Carolyn believed Bathsheba had lived on the Arnold estate, and after speaking to a local historian who suggested that Bathsheba wasn't actually buried beneath her tombstone in the local cemetery, Carolyn began to wonder if maybe she had been buried on the property, maybe beneath that bell-shaped stone by the old well. (gasps) Oh, my God. 
don't disturb the bones. I mean, I feel like that's never a good idea either. I feel like they shouldn't dig it up. But what about the other entities like Manny, the nice guy? She didn't find anything about him specifically, I don't think. She seemed to have found record of a few other members of the Arnold family who supposedly died in the house or on the property. So here's a quick rundown of who they are and how they died. I'm nervous. You should be. (laughs) There's a Mrs. John Arnold who, at the age of 93, died by suicide in Mm. the barn. In one of the books, Andrea mentions that she was found hanging from, quote, the same beam from which the scythe had fallen. Oh, I just heard a weird creak in my house. (sighs) There's a John Arnold who also died by suicide, possibly in the attic. Mm. And a Harmony Arnold was also listed as having died in the house, though the cause of death wasn't listed. Hmm. Probably the most gruesome of the stories that Carolyn found was that of Prudence Arnold, an 11-year-old girl who was sexually assaulted and murdered in the house. Her murderer was a local farmhand, and he died by suicide immediately after, also in the house, I believe, or according to the story. What? And then finally, outside of the Arnold family, Carolyn found stories of a father and son who both reportedly drowned in a pond on the property, but 10 years apart from each other. What? Town records indicated that the father died during a, quote, weather event. I don't know what that would mean, but Mm. I don't think they found record of the son's death. So this family did not live a wonderful life, from what I gather. The father and the son. I mean, everybody. Oh, the Baker boys are a different family. So Mm -hmm. nobody who enters this house, really. And do you know how long they'd been living in the house at that point? It's a little unclear in the books. It seems like the timeline kind of jumps around, but... I believe it was sometime in the first two years there because it seems like Carolyn had all of this information by the time the Warrens got involved in October 1973. The Warrens are back. They're back. To give you a quick reintroduction to them, Ed and Lorraine Warren were paranormal investigators. Ed was a demonologist and Lorraine was a self-proclaimed psychic medium. They investigated thousands of cases across the country, including the Amityville case in 1975 and the Smurl House case in the 80s. Mm. In addition to founding the New England Society for Psychic Research and opening an occult museum, the couple gave hundreds of lectures on their work and wrote several books about the cases they investigated, many of which have inspired movies like Annabelle, The Haunting in Connecticut, and of course, The Conjuring. Sounds like we have more to dig into. Of course we do. (laughs) Unlike in the Smurls case where they learned of the Warrens and reached out to them for help, it was actually the Warrens who heard about the Perrin family and sought them out. On their first visit to the farmhouse, the Warrens walked through the entire house and Lorraine identified several rooms she said should be sealed off, including Carolyn and Roger's bedroom. Mm. She also, I guess without hearing the name from the Perrins, identified Bathsheba as the evil (laughs) entity that was causing their problems. She channeled the name in a psychic vision, maybe. But there are other versions of the story where this happens after she's seen their research. So, uh, again, unclear. Hmm. Ed and Lorraine interviewed the family over the course of more visits and several phone calls to learn more about their encounters in the house. And at one point, Andrea confided in Lorraine, expressing some resentment towards her mom for becoming extremely distant and leaving her to take on the responsibility of caring for her younger sisters. She also told Lorraine about physical symptoms her mother had been experiencing, like rapid weight loss and frequent fainting. Not good. Not good. So the Warrens got worried that Carolyn was on the brink of possession, and they began insisting that they should hold a seance at the house. Carolyn was reluctant about the idea, and Roger was completely against it. 
Well, guess who's never home? So Roger. they don't get to say. Yeah. But eventually the Warrens sort of sprung it on them anyway. They arrived with basically hmm. no notice and a van full of people and recording <gasps> equipment. Okay. Long story short, it did not go well. During the seance, Carolyn experienced a sort of possession. She lost control of her body and was mumbling in a language no one could understand. And then suddenly, her chair shot back from the table in the dining room, flew into the parlor, and her body slammed to the floor. And everyone panicked. Roger ended up punching Ed in the face, and then he screamed at everyone to leave, which they did. Oh my god. So although it was a total disaster and it definitely did not rid the house of spirits, the seance did spark something of a truce between the living and the dead. Andrea says in her books that the spirits suddenly became cooperative and that there was an entirely new level of mutual acceptance and respect between her family and the ghosts of the house. So that's good. Yeah. It also sparked a change in Carolyn, who sort of came back to life, if you will. Hmm. She stopped being so distant from her daughters. Good. But the seance exposed the cracks in other relationships. Immediately after he kicked everyone out that night, Roger blew up and blamed the whole thing on Carolyn, who, by the way, still has no recollection of what happened during the seance. So after that, she was done with him. She started tuning him out. And then she found out that he had cheated. Ugh. So it was just a very bad time for their relationship, which never fully recovered. They ended up divorcing in 1981. But so they lived like almost a decade with that bad juju between them. Yeah, I would say that she found out he cheated sometime after late 1974, early 1975. Maybe, again, lots of the timeline is unclear, but they stayed together for quite some time after. Well, they clearly had their hands full. Yeah. The night of the seance also essentially marked the end of the family's relationship with the Warrens, which honestly wasn't that strong to begin with. Roger, as you know, was a major skeptic and not too fond of them, and Carolyn herself had lost trust in them weeks before when she found out they broke the confidentiality agreement that they had by talking about their case at one of their seminars. Wait, how did she find out? Because strangers started coming to the house, and some even asked to come inside and look around, and so she must have asked one of them. They also failed to return Carolyn's notebook full of notes and drawings tracking the activity in the house, which they borrowed to make copies. And she felt like this was a huge betrayal because she considered it her legacy to leave to her children. The drawings, her creepy ass drawings was a okay, different strokes, I guess, for different folks. Well, the girls loved a lot of the spirits. But yeah, I hear you. A few weeks after the seance, when the Warrens stopped by to check on Carolyn, she wouldn't let them in. They didn't speak again for six years. Oof. There's no bad blood between the parents and the Warrens now. Well, the Warrens are both dead. But Andrea says that everyone in her family believes that the Warrens had good intentions and only wanted to help, but that they just weren't prepared for what was in the house. Yeah. Interesting. So then what? Did the hauntings ever stop or how much longer did they live there? No, the hauntings never stopped and the parents eventually had enough. They sold the farmhouse in June of 1980. Andrea was a senior in college at the time and she remembers getting the phone call with the news and feeling devastated. Mm. Nancy was even more upset. She actually refused to leave. She went to the new owners, who were actually the abutting landowners, and she babysat for them. Huh. And she offered to stay on as a caretaker of the property, which they agreed to. Andrea recently shared a chilling story from the day they moved out in an interview with the paranormal road trippers that I want to tell you about. Yeah. She said that as they pulled away from the house, she looked back and saw an apparition of a woman standing in the middle dining room window behind Nancy, who was on the porch. Two days later, when they got to their new house in Georgia, 
they were greeted by Cindy, who had gone down a few days before to bring the horses and get them settled in the new barn. As they were pulling into the driveway, they saw the same female apparition standing behind Cindy. Andrea said, My mother just gasped, and she said, This isn't over. This will never be over. Oh, my God. Did she say if they experienced more paranormal activity at the new house after that? Yeah, which is actually why when Lorraine Warren called about a few months after they moved in, asking to write a book and make a movie about their story, Carolyn ultimately said no. Interesting. Mm. At first she said she'd have to talk to Roger about it, but the same night while she was home alone doing laundry in the cellar, a 200-pound solid oak door came flying off the wall it'd been leaning against and landed on top of her. What? And it dislocated her shoulder and she got a concussion. So after that, she called Lorraine back and said that she would not give permission for them to tell the story. Oh my God. Of course, we all know that a movie did eventually get made. The Conjuring hit theaters in July 2013. And the script is supposedly based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And the story is really told through their lens as the main characters rather than the parents. Okay. So again, Lorraine had identified Bathsheba as the evil entity in the farmhouse. And that is at least kept the same in the movie. But the rest of the plot is just embellished for the silver screen, I guess. Hmm. In the movie, Carolyn becomes possessed by Bathsheba and tries to kill several of her own daughters. Oh, good. So they really ran with this. Yeah. But they used their real names? Yeah, I couldn't figure out exactly how or when the parents got looped in, but they must have been at some point because Andrea attended several premieres of the movie. And Mm -hmm. in one interview I watched, she said she became the face of the movie and responsible for a bulk Mm -hmm. of its promotion because the lead actors were anxious to promote it themselves after the weird experiences they had on set. Okay, what happened on set then? A couple things. Vera Farmiga, who plays Lorraine Warren in the movie, said that while filming, claw marks appeared on her laptop screen. And then after filming wrapped, she said the same claw marks appeared on her thigh. What the fuck? Shanley Caswell, the actress who played Andrea Perrin, said she and other members of the cast would wake up between 3 and 4 a.m. every morning on set. In an episode of E! True Hollywood Story, she said, Every time I woke up, I just felt like I was being watched. Ugh. Probably the scariest of all is what happened to Joey King, who played Chrissy Perrin. While filming the movie, she developed a rare blood disorder out of nowhere. Mm. She was at risk for internal bleeding and possibly going to need a blood transfusion. Mm -hmm. So she had to go to the hospital to have her blood taken every day, twice a day, before and after work. But then all of a sudden, after she finished filming the movie, she was fine. And apparently she hasn't had a problem with her blood since. That is so weird. Isn't that weird? You know me, I'm annoying and I'll always be the skeptic, but I'm wondering, like, was is there some kind of, like, anxiety-related thing? Was playing this role really more stressful than a typical role? Although she has played, you know, intense. She talked about it on the Drew Barrymore show, and she said that every time she thinks about it, she shudders a little. So that's all very creepy, but I do want to point out that the movie was shot in North Carolina, okay. nowhere near the actual house. It doesn't even resemble it. But regardless of the creative liberties taken, Andrea Perrin says that she enjoyed the movie and that she's grateful for its success because it's brought so much attention to her family's real story as told through her books. I was thinking, is the mom's, is Carolyn's no longer alive? I think she is alive. Oh, I was going to say, like, I wonder if her daughter waited until her mother passed away because she knows that her mom didn't want the movie, but I guess not. I did try to reach out to Andrea Perrin, but at the time of this recording, I haven't heard back from her. Mm. So I wasn't able to get clarification on that. I think in an interview I listened to, she said 
her mom said something like, you're the writer in the family, so if anybody's going to tell the story, it should be you. So I think okay. at some point they eventually just decided that they would. Okay. Also, the movie was in the works for years and years yeah. before it was made. So they might have caught wind that that was happening and said, you know what? Tell our story the way we tell it. Yeah, totally. Or also at this point, her daughters are grownups. It's not only her story anymore. So if they wanted to tell it, it's not like only up to Carolyn. Well, right. Also, Andrea says she's working on a screenplay for, I think, a show, not a movie, but actually portraying the story as she wrote it. Okay. So we'll see if that comes out. Yeah. But not everyone was as pleased with the movie. At the time when The Conjuring came out, the owners of the farmhouse were Norma Sutcliffe and Jerry Helfrich. Helfrich? I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Sorry, Jerry. They purchased the home in 1987. The couple filed a lawsuit against Warner Brothers seeking unspecified damages after the movie drew unwanted attention to their home. In the court documents, they explained that trespassers flocked to the property to get a look at the house, leaving the owners subject to, quote, threats of physical violence and harm, sleepless nights, and worry that one day, one of the many trespassers will commit an act of destruction, violence, or harm. The couple also alleged that Warner Brothers made and released the movie without notifying them. At first, I thought they were overreacting, but then I read more about what was actually happening at the house. In addition to trespassers showing up day and night, all day long, they were also receiving harassing phone calls, and apparently threads started to pop up online where people were discussing destroying the house because it was, quote, so full of evil. Oh, no. Norma is quoted in the Boston Globe saying, it won't end. It's like Amityville. I mean, can you imagine the horror of trying to sell this house? Yeah, that sucks. I didn't even think of that. Do you know if they won the lawsuit? Norma's attorney told NBC10 News that the case was settled out of court with a confidentiality agreement. But there's more. Hmm. More beef to settle. This is where we really got to keep our objective hats on. Stay vigilant (laughs) and assess the situation. Okay. In an hour-long video posted to YouTube in April 2014, Norma Sutcliffe declared that the farmhouse is not, nor was it ever, haunted. She also disputed nearly every claim about the property's history and who died there that had been made in Andrea Perrin's books. Wow. It's a lot of information to unpack, so I'm going to give you the briefest version possible. But if you'd like to read about the inaccuracies in detail, check out Kenny Biddle's article called Correcting the Conjuring House History, which was published on skepticalinquirer.org in 2019. I'm going to summarize his key findings for you now. Okay. We're going back to that list of people that Carolyn's research said died in the house, okay? The Arnolds, the poor Arnolds. Yep. There is essentially no Mrs. John Arnold. (laughs) A Susan Richardson Arnold did die by suicide in Burville in 1866. But according to her obituary, this happened in her own house on Harrisville Road in District 1, which Kenny points out is several miles away from the farmhouse, which is in District 6. But Susan Arnold was not even a member of the same Arnold family that previously owned the farmhouse. So zero connection. Wow. There is record of the Johnny Arnold that Carolyn claimed also died by suicide in the farmhouse. John A. Arnold was the son of Edwin Arnold, who did own the house. So this is a real connection. And he did die by suicide in 1911. But his obituary states that he died at his home near Tarklin, which is several miles from the farmhouse. Carolyn had the details of Prudence Arnold's death correct, but her murder, which was well-documented at the time, took place in her home in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, nine miles from the farmhouse. 
Hmm. As for the so-called Baker boys, there's no record of a father and son who drowned on the property, though two men did freeze to death. The first was a man named Jarvis Smith who died in 1901. His body was found in a rickety shed on the property, but FYI, the shed was apparently torn down decades ago. The second man was Edwin Arnold, Johnny's father and the former owner of the farmhouse. He died from exposure in 1903 while walking home one night, and his remains were found about a mile and a half down the road, leaning against a stone wall of the Smith Aldrich farm. So technically, he did not die on the property of 1677 Roundtop Road. Kenny's article doesn't address the harmony Arnold mentioned in House of Darkness, House of Light, but I think we can agree there's enough here to say that Carolyn's research was not fact-checked before Andrea's first book was published in 2011. The second volume was published in 2013, and the third was published in 2014. Huh. I mean, I have a lot of questions. I, I do think, though, that we've talked to enough people where there are theories about how you can haunt a place that you didn't die in necessarily. Totally, except that most of them weren't really connected to the farmhouse. Yeah. Johnny and Edwin, maybe. Yeah. And Jarvis Smith did die there, so maybe he could have as well. Who was he to the family? Was he just like a groundskeeper? No, he was just walking through. I want to know more about this town. Maybe the way that they named these streets and broke things up was just really different back then. So it looks like it was six miles away, but it was actually just, they called it something different back then. So both Kenny and Norma suggest that Carolyn Perrin read the Black Book of Burville, which was a list of unusual deaths in the town from 1806 onward. And basically she took anyone with the last name Arnold and said they died at the farmhouse. But that still doesn't explain the issue of Bathsheba, who not only wasn't an Arnold and never had any connection to the farmhouse, but also was apparently never accused of witchcraft or put on trial for the murder of an infant. What the fuck? So let's talk about Bathsheba. Wait, really quickly. That reminds me of in the beginning when you were like, Carolyn was accused of being a witch at their other house. Mm -hmm. But they don't explain that. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they made it up too. I don't know. It is a weird thing to include though. Like, why would you say that about your own mom? To draw the connection to Bathsheba because it makes for a better story. I guess, but Bathsheba's the antagonist. I don't know. Okay, let's talk about her. Kenny says there are actually very few records about Bathsheba Sherman, but he did find that she was born in 1814 and her maiden name was Thayer. She married Judson Sherman and moved from the Thayer farm to the Sherman farm where she lived for the rest of her life. Together, the Shermans had four children, three of whom did die at an early age, but none of their deaths were suspicious. After Bathsheba died in 1885, she was buried next to her first husband in the Riverside Cemetery. And then, like I said, no record or indication of the supposed accusations of witchcraft and trial held against her as described by the parents and further perpetuated in The Conjuring. Hmm. Where did they come up with the story? I don't really know. According to House of Darkness, House of Light, Carolyn heard a lot of that story from someone called Mr. McKeerchurn, who was a local historian who was almost 100 years old and supposedly alive when Bathsheba was. But that's not his real name. And at this point, it's unclear whether or not he's even a real person. Well, regardless, that's a pretty heavy reputation to hang on someone, even if she's been dead for 100 years. Right. And it's caused some issues for the town. I was able to get in touch with Betty Menchucci, president of the Burrowville Historical and Preservation Society, via email. She said that people come from all over the country to vandalize Bathsheba's headstone, and it's been broken several times over the years since The Conjuring. And today, it's damaged beyond repair, so the Historical Society has started a GoFundMe page to raise money to buy a replacement. Any updates? Is it replaced yet? I don't think so. 
She also said that she's spoken to Norma many times and she has done talks at our historical society and always said her house was not haunted. Hmm. But that's a little muddy, too, because years prior to The Conjuring being released, Norma Sutcliffe seemed to at least entertain the idea that the farmhouse was allegedly haunted. Hmm. For example, in February 2012, she did an interview with NBC10 News and demonstrated some of the odd occurrences she and her husband experienced it after buying the home in 1987, like doors banging. She also invited ghost hunters to film there. But she defends all of this in her YouTube video and says that at no point during the Ghost Hunters episode did she ever claim to have had paranormal experiences in the house. Okay, you would think, though, if you're going to involve yourself in that show, it's because you want to talk about ghosts. Otherwise... She, in the video, says that her friend gave her the idea and she told them that Ed and Lorraine Warren had investigated the house in the 70s. So she wasn't saying, oh, there was ghosts here, but that this was a house linked to Ed and Lorraine Warren. Also, maybe they paid her for it. Well, she also filmed an interview with Andrea Perrin before all of this, and they were supposedly on good terms. But Norma seemed to backtrack on that in her video as well. She expressed Mm. a lot of frustration with Andrea Perrin throughout the video, and I won't go into the details because it's a bunch of she said, she said, but there was one thing that really stuck out to me. Come to find out, Norma ran a daycare out of the home for a number of years. I don't have the exact years, but she owned the home from 1987 to 2019. So I think sometime in the 80s. Okay. In the YouTube video, she says, When she spoke to a small group, the people there called me to inform me that Andrea told the group that while I had childcare here, a child, an infant, continuously levitated out of a crib and I would continuously find it on the floor. I was very, very upset about that. Yeah, that's a really serious claim to make. Totally. It's a put you out of business type of claim. Yeah. And also, like, imagine how concerned the parents would be who were leaving their children there, too. This isn't something that Norma heard firsthand, so we don't know for sure that Andrea Perrin actually said that. But more claims came out about the daycare after Norma and Jerry sold the house and a new family moved in. In June 2019, a couple from Maine, Corey and Jennifer Heinzen, bought the farmhouse for $439,000. The Heinzens are paranormal enthusiasts themselves, and they quickly began talking to news outlets about their own experiences with activity in the house. A month after buying the house, Corey told NBC10 News, It's been very busy. Doors opening and closing on their own. Footsteps knocking. The disembodied voices. Last night, we had a black mist in one of the rooms. It looks like smoke. It'll gather in one area, and then it'll move. Mm. Meanwhile, their daughter, Madison Heinzen, began posting videos about the house on TikTok. In one video, talking about how there used to be a daycare there, she claimed that previous visitors of the daycare have, quote, come forward to us to talk about their paranormal experiences while being there in which doors would randomly open or objects would move out of place and things like that. Then she went on to say, things must have gotten really bad at one point in time because all the mothers gathered together and unenrolled their children on the same day. Madison also said she found remnants of the daycare in the house, including a toy box with drawings of the crooked neck lady inside. Oh, my God. Bent neck lady is back. Also, has this been fact-checked at all? I tried contacting Norma to verify this, but I wasn't able to get in touch with her. So instead, I reached out to a trusted online investigator, my mom. (sighs) My mom sent me a link to the About page of Marianne Shellcross-Smith. And according to this page... Marianne has a doctorate in leadership and child studies from Nova Southeastern University and more than 48 years of professional child care experience. 
In the same bio, she explains that in the 1970s, there were no child care regulations for child care in a home. So she and her good friend, Norma Sutcliffe, (gasps) worked with the Rhode Island Department of Children, Youth and Families to write the state's first regulations to keep children safe and well cared for in a family child care home. And I know that this doesn't confirm anything, but it made me feel better about Norma in the daycare. Yeah. But the story is so twisted. I don't really know who to believe. I know I don't buy the story about everybody unenrolling in one day. Yeah. And I don't think that she would have been perpetuating the story of the broken neck lady either. So I don't know. No, I, me either. But isn't the idea, though, that a little kid saw the bent neck lady or whatever and then drew it themselves without Norma saying anything to them? I, I suppose, right? But at the same time, when I did the 3D Zillow tour, there's one room at the very edge of the house that maybe has been added on in the years, but there's writing all over the walls. It looks like people signed their names. And I didn't know if it was something that when tours were allowed, how do we know that somebody didn't draw that in the toy box and add that after the fact? So I don't know that I believe it's a true remnant of the daycare. Yeah. We also don't know what area of the house was dedicated to the daycare. Just not a lot to go on, but I thought, okay, well, was she not licensed? Like, what's the deal here? But she sounds quite legit, and she seems to still work on the board of aftercare programs. So I don't think, I don't question too much of that. Yeah. I mean, frankly, it's hard to keep track of who said it was haunted and who's been accused of saying it was haunted. Yeah, I know. So as of today, there is no question that the Heinzen family believes the farmhouse is haunted. They fully embraced the reputation, conducting their own investigations, and even opening the house up for tours. And the newest owner is a believer, too. Oh, there's a new one. A new one. In May of this year, Boston developer Jacqueline Nunez purchased the home for $1,525,000, which was more than 20% over the asking price of $1.2 million. Whoa. Nunez told the Boston Globe she has a deep belief in the paranormal. And after visiting the property, she thought, I have to have this house. She also told the newspaper that the Heinzen family included a specific rule in the sale. The new owner could not live at the house year-round. Quote, because the energy is so powerful, they put it in there as protection for the buyer. Madison Heinzen shared news of the sale on TikTok and said that her family will remain involved with the farmhouse and will work alongside Nunez to manage the property and facilitate tours and events there. Huh. Speaking of events, last Halloween, Andrea, Nancy, and Roger Perrin returned to the farmhouse to take part in a live-streamed paranormal investigation there. Carolyn, Chrissy, and Cindy stayed home in Georgia, but they joined the event virtually. During the live stream, Andrea said they heard from a number of spirits through a spirit box and that they also made contact with their late sister, April, who passed away in 2017 in connection with the surgery. No. She was right there. Other spirits were saying her name. Andrea told the Providence Journal. Wait, can I quickly ask for clarification? April wasn't the one who saw the little boy, was she? She is. Oh, yeah. I'm so sad for her. Very sad. Andrea also told the journal that to this day, she feels drawn to the farmhouse, saying, every now and then, it just reaches out to me and says, come home. Don't go home. (laughs) Yeah. Andrea says she'd like to buy the house back someday. And when she mentioned this to Lorraine Warren at a premiere event for The Conjuring back in 2013, Lorraine responded with an ominous warning. She said... (laughs) If you go back, you won't get out of it alive. Is that a threat? Well, whatever it was, it didn't scare Andrea. Her last words on the matter were, I'll let the universe decide whether this is our last visit to the farmhouse. I don't need to own it. It owns me. Okay. 
that is the story, most of it, of The Conjuring House. That was good. I'm freaked out. You like? Yeah. I mean, yes. Lots to unpack here. You know, I really thought it was going to be similar to The Smurls. I thought it was going to be a more residual stuff. Yeah. There were chock full of apparitions. Mm -hmm. I think Conjuring has way more apparitions than The Smurl story. And... The back and forth between is it haunted, is it not haunted, I'll add that Betty Menchucci from the Historical Society says it's not haunted. She said the Kenyan family that lived there before Norma had a perfectly normal life. They don't think it's haunted. I had actually reached out to her because Norma says that the Kenyan family left letters with her and with the Historical Society saying huh. it was not haunted never in the 200 years that it had been in their family. So I don't know if the Kenyans are descendants from the Arnolds. I don't fucking know. It's so complicated. Yeah, like someone married somebody and then, yeah. Possibly. I mean, also, we've always talked about how you. this is one thing that you can just never prove or disprove. Yeah, and so. even Andrea says that. She'll say she doesn't believe in demons because she doesn't know if they exist and we don't. We, none of it can be proved. She said not to trust people who say that they're demon experts. She said if there's a, such thing as a paranormal expert, her family is, which I think makes sense in that mm. they had so much experience with the activity yeah. That that's what she means by quote unquote expert. Like they can give you advice on how to cope or something. Or just that they've dealt with so much of it that, that that's as expert as you can be. But the school of life. I believe that they had these experiences at the houses. I just don't yeah. know that the people that they think they were is that that's who it was. You know what I mean? I'm not saying yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, the house yeah. wasn't haunted and that they didn't have these experiences. Just that they put out the wrong information in the books. By the third volume, yeah. I believe she does start to correct some of it, but then still sticks with the idea that that person's spirit is still tied to the house, even if they okay. didn't die there, which, again, confusing. But what I liked about the books and Andrea's story was she talks a lot about how now they have a different view of life and life after death and what happens hmm. after that because of these experiences, which I thought was really interesting. I really hope that that little boy has found peace. Yeah, me too. I don't know how I made it through the letter not crying this time, but lots of sentiment there. Yeah. Truly. I know it meant a lot to April. Yeah. Hopefully they're together. Yeah. Well, I want to believe as much of everybody's story as possible. I mean, not here to point fingers at anyone, but it was way more dramatic and twisty and turny than I thought it was going to be. But overall, I mean, I found it really interesting. Yeah. It was equal parts scary and juicy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. They balanced each other out nicely. And you did a great job telling it. Thank you. <laughs> I did my best to include the most important encounters the parents had at the farmhouse, but of course we didn't have time for everything. So if you'd like to read more about their experiences with paranormal activity at the house, you can check out Andrea Perrin's book trilogy, House of Darkness, House of Light, which I've linked in the description of this episode. I've also included links to some of the interviews, articles, and videos mentioned in today's episode if you'd like to dig into any of those. But with that, I think we can close the book on this one. As always, thank you all for listening. If you haven't already, please make sure to leave us a rating and subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed this story, we'd really appreciate if you could take a minute and let us know in an Apple podcast review. You can also reach out to us on Instagram. We're at Dark House Podcast and our personal handles are just our full names. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. And that's all I got. <laughs>